Man, what a powerful way to start our week in the Lord. So good. Exciting week ahead. Man, we got Reggie Dabbs going to be here for a couple days uh, later this week on Thursday, Friday. Thank you for Render, I think, gave up today. I don't know how the schedule worked that I got uh, put on this Monday, but man, I'm glad I did. That was powerful, powerful, powerful. Thank you guys so much. Let's put the lights up just a little bit if we can and uh, give somebody a little fist pump or a smile or a little mask move or whatever you do, uh, a little mask snap, poof, uh, say hi to them as you are seated today. Thank you guys. So powerful, so powerful. Good to see everybody on Monday. Whew. Man, I, I've been here for four years. That's the coldest I've been is this weekend. Um, that was cold. How many, how, many felt, how many just stayed inside the whole time? Never even went outside. Don't even know what's going on out there in that big, bad world. My wife and I, we turned on, on, uh, on YouTube, we turned on the fireplace thing and just listened to uh, instrumental music in front of that moving fire flame on our TV all weekend and tried to stay warm over Valentine's uh, weekend. But just so glad that you're here on a Monday. Man, we're in the heart of the semester. It's the grind right now, and it's cold, and it's all that. And these will be the things you remember most about North Central. And it'll be the things you will miss the most about North Central. Like, man, I remember I used to freeze, and I kind of miss that. Uh, you, you, just the memory of it, but not the reality of it. But I just want to say hi to the Garza family uh, is here. And uh, I just want to tell Pastor Nick, um, he is a great leader in this country with Convoy of Hope and works uh, um, with Pastor Sam Rodriguez out in Sacramento and really all over this country uh, with the National Hispanic Leadership uh, Coalition and uh, Council and just a great, great leader. And Nick, thank you for coming, your family, uh, everybody here. We got two of the of the Garzas here, and uh, we're blessed with that. But thank you guys for sticking around. I think they're flying out today. So get your Bibles ready. Let's go to First uh, Timothy chapter four, verse twelve. First Timothy four twelve. It's going to be up on the up on the screen. You know, one of the common themes in Scripture is I was listening to this song, uh, the worship team that just took me, lifted my heart. There, it was so powerful today, and just provided like a wide open space for me to enter into the Lord today, is whenever I feel that flame or that thing ignite in my heart or the fire of God in my heart, that enthusiasm, uh, that, that, that aspiration, that sense that, that the future is better than the past, um, that, that's what hope is. Hope is not some mystical concept. It's this. It's believing that the future is more promising than the past. Once you once you fail to believe that the future is more promising than the past, you've lost hope. And that's when people move into despair and their decision-making becomes very, very difficult when you're in a place of confusion and despair. That's why hope is always critical. That's why people, even on their dying bed and their dying breath, have hope. Because they believe that the future is more promising than the past. But if you don't know the Lord and this life is all you have, then at some point, you, you pass that midway mark and you have less of this earth in front of you than you have, you have more of this earth behind you than you have in front of you. And I was interested the other day, I saw this interesting statistic it, where it lists the years, like 1940, this was the number one movie and this was the number one thing and this is how much a house costs. Anybody ever seen those? Usually they list what the average lifespan was that year. 
And so it's been interesting. I went back to look at 1930. Why 1930? That's the year this school started in 1930. The average lifespan for an American in 1930 was 58. I'm 58. So th that would have been it for me. This, I, I would have peaked right now, and they would have been frightened that at any moment uh, my, I would become a statistic. Now it's way up in the high 70s. I think we even got into the early 80s a little bit. I think it's back like 79. So I still got a little bit of tread left on the tire. But it was, it was kind of startling to see that the average lifespan was 58 back in 1930. And I was thinking about all the people that have passed through this place. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of people have come through here. And I guarantee one common theme. At whatever point the fire of, of hope and the fire of the Lord got into their heart, which means they had this, uh, this feeling that the future was going to be powerful, that they were going to be a part of that future, that they had a significant contribution to tomorrow. That's what hopefully we are here in this time of discovery and honing of talents and gifts, calling, careers, all of that stuff's going on. And you feel this anticipation. Now, there's a lot of factors that are battling against that. But here's fundamentally what, what the enemy is seeking to do at any point of entry or when the fire is new or the fire is fresh, is he wants to quickly extinguish the flame. He wants, to, he wants just to throw water on the flame and create you know, smoke and ash instead of fire. And then at that point, when the fire goes out, you've got to reignite the fire. But that fire, it may dim, it may soar, it may rage, it may get a little bit smaller at times, but the fire has to keep burning in our life for a lifetime. Because the enemy is out to extinguish it, especially at the very beginning stages. The Bible metaphor story was that of a seed being cast on the road and a bird quickly comes and eats it. Like the minute you hear it, it's gone. The minute you see it, it's, it disappears. The minute God begins or invites to do something in your life, invites you to, do, to have him work in your life, man, the devil steals the seed or he extinguishes the flame. How does that flame go, get extinguished? Well, I know early on in my leadership life, through disappointment, I would be surprised that somebody I was counting on let me down. I, would, I was surprised when somebody I was counting on turned against me said something negative behind my back. I was in my early 20s, had that raging flame of the Lord in my life to do great things for the kingdom. And I was shocked when somebody was not buying into my life or was trying to sabotage my progress. Or when I, somebody that I looked up to failed morally. I couldn't believe it. Like I put my trust in you. I was around you. And man, you were doing that behind the scenes. And so you start seeing that a few times and you begin then to live suspicious and you cannot live suspicious because that suspicious living is part of how the devil extinguishes your flame. You can't meet people and go, yeah, what's the real story with you? I know I deal with that all the time because when you come into roles of, of social uh, meaning, like uh, you lead a college or you lead a church or you lead a business and you serve from that, that space, Everybody in this day and age thinks you're a fake and it's only a matter of time till they figure out or find out or somebody outs you or cancels you over this or that. And so you're always living with that reality. But the fact is, I don't live paranoid for that because I do try to live in the light and try to live a life that's open, not concealed.
When I was a little kid, we moved 27 times. And whenever we would move, um, we lived in the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, Colorado uh, areas, Colorado just for one year, but mainly Washington and Oregon. And we always lived by uh, uh, the woods, and I would always go exploring. And this is back in the day where your parents, honest to goodness, I was five-year-old and running through the woods un, unsupervised. I mean, I was five years old running, walking to the store unsupervised. I mean, people didn't supervise your life back then because nobody was, was, I don't know, maybe they were stealing. I don't know, but maybe my parents didn't care, but we all just kind of raised ourselves back when we were five. Now they say the average age a kid becomes unsupervised is age 11. And they're saying that's part of the difficulty is learning, but that's for a different teaching time. So I was basically unsupervised from five years old on. I would go into the woods. You know, who knew if the bears were there or if, you know, Sasquatch or whatever that big animal was up in the Pacific Northwest was going to be hiding behind a tree. And the woods were my sanctuary. Now, I grew up in a very strict home. How many grew up, though, in the woods? Like, you grew up near woods. Uh, how many did not grow up near the woods? The woods was where the forts were. It's where the wild berries were. It's where the squirrels were. And it, it's also one of my most epic moments of sin in my life. Now, I, my family grew up strict. My parents didn't swear. How many grew up in a home where parents did not swear? Swearing was wrong, like really wrong, like it was a mortal sin straight to hell for swearing. Swearing was just off, and I just... I, I want to qualify what I just said. That was a place, not a word, what I just said. So straight to. So, because that's how paranoid I am of using any kind of coarse profanity in my life. But when I was in fifth grade, I was just, I wasn't serving the Lord. My heart wasn't hot. The flame wasn't burning. And I was absolutely mesmerized by kids who swore. And I wanted to swear and see what it was like. So one day, true story, true story. I went deep into the woods. And I can take you to the very tree because I found the tree about two months ago. I was up in the Pacific Northwest, kind of went exploring where I lived in this one blue house, went up this trail called the Wilburton Trail. I went to the very tree. It's still there by the blackberry bushes. And when I was in fourth or fifth grade, I went under that tree and for 15 minutes all by myself, I, I swore. I just said swear word after swear word just to see what they felt like. I said every word, forwards, backwards. I was just out there by myself in the woods swearing my head off. Got it all out of my system, and I don't think I have sworn since. Um, but I just got all that, that stuff out there in the woods. So the woods is a, is a pretty cool place. But I would do this one thing in the woods. I would find a rock in a meadow somewhere, a big boulder, and I would... Imagine that that rock had been there since the time of, of Noah. And I was going to be an important person in history because I was going to be the first human being to move that rock. I thought, how cool is that? To be the first human being to ever roll that rock. That makes me one of a kind. So I would roll the rock. I put my fingers under it. I was a little guy, probably six, seven, eight, nine years. I did this all the time. Big bolt. And I rolled it. And I found the same thing under every rock. Nothing. It was, it was dead. See, up in the Pacific Northwest, it rains a lot. So around the rock was always brilliant green grass. But when I rolled the rock, beneath the rock, it was damp and lifeless, except for some spiders and maybe a little potato bug that would, that would scurry away because the light hit it. 
And I found the same thing under every rock in that, that space where without light, I found nothing. Nothing grew. I would come back a couple weeks later and the space that I had exposed to the light started to grow these little tiny uh, sp little sprouts of green grass were growing. And I saw this repeated. I never captured the epiphany in any kind of language or understanding until I became older. But I did realize this later in life. That whenever there is a secret in our life without light, whenever we're hiding something, life cannot dwell beneath a secret. So there's parts of my heart that are always stony, contain some boulders. My relationship with Jesus on a daily basis is to roll that rock from that, or that secret, expose to the Lord who loves me and who is light, that dark place in my heart, and things begin to grow when there was light. It works like love. And I know it's a very simple illustration. First of all, it is cool that I was the first human since Noah to move that rock. I was convinced of that. still am today. But I never found a living thing that was beneath the rock. So when you carry secrets in your life, throughout your adult life, things that you will not expose to the Lord, things that you will not expose to a trusted brother or sister to say, man, I'm, I'm carrying a wound. The wound is becoming a distraction. The disappointment is becoming a distraction. And I'm about to make all kinds of new decisions in my life based on a secret. The more that we keep our hearts exposed to the light of God's word, I promise the life that God intended you to have will grow. But when you collect a series of secrets, it's like putting large rocks over your heart. In that space of secrecy, nothing can thrive. And it, except some things that you don't want to thrive. And then they scurry the minute light hits. So I want to encourage us as we look at this very important verse of scripture, 1 Timothy 4.12. I want us to look at it in a way like we're rolling a rock, exposing our hearts to the Lord and allowing him to inspire us to a new place. Here it goes. You've heard it before. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. One last time. Speech conduct, love, faith, and purity. This is my dashboard. This is my gas tank, my speedometer. This is, uh, see if my engine's hot. <laughs> These are the very simple five things that have been named in scripture for me to point my priorities to. Like, oh, I just need to be more committed to God. It's not enough, friends. The reason the Bible names sins and gives long lists is because we will never trust our own heart to be specific enough to confess that which the enemy is working in our life, nor will we be spiritual enough to create the peak and the priority for what God has for us. So the Bible gives us specific names. And in this case, it's speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. I have been using this very simple dashboard since my early 20s in my life. I'm 58 now. 
to think about the things that matter most to the Lord as a disciple, as a follower of Christ. We're going to break this down, very simple language. So Paul writes to Timothy, this protege, he's not 13, scholars are a little bit all over the map on how old Timothy actually was, but he clearly was a young man to whom fell under the care and the interest of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul um, used Timothy side by side in ministry, and he became much more than one, I believe there was about 16 individuals, young individuals that the Apostle Paul names in Scripture that were really protégés that became church planters and great, great leaders of the early church. But Timothy really rises to the top of that list. Uh, as Paul writes to Timothy, he is treating him like a biological son, not just a spiritual kingdom uh, relationship. Very very important relationship between Paul and Timothy. So as he writes this, he is instructing and giving us a, a window of the relationship and the priorities that the rising or the emerging have, as well as some of the pitfalls that you're going to encounter from the perceptions of people who also love the Lord, that you got to navigate those pitfalls, mainly that you're not, you're not ready yet. And that sense of discouragement from being held back from another person's perception of your readiness, man, it's going to hit all of us in different ways. It hit me at significant times in my life. I was the finalist at age 30 to be a pastor of probably the most significant church, one of them in California, Bethel Church of San Jose. On four occasions, they've asked me if I was interested in being the pastor. I wanted to be the pastor when I was 30 years of age there. It was down to me and another guy that was 40 at the time. And they picked the other guy and they simply said, you're not ready. You're just a little too young. Man, that stung. I was already pastoring four years into the church I had planted. It had grown to a thousand people. And they're telling me that I was too young. Uh, I wasn't ready. So I want us to think about uh, these words to Timothy, and really these are words to all of us in this room, and it gives us a powerful, powerful entry point into the five priorities that we need to keep before us for the rest of our life. First of all, the scripture says, if we'll keep that verse up there, let no one look down on you for your youthfulness. This word look down, it's a very powerful emotion to be looked down upon. I'm at the stage in life where I read this verse of scripture and I am commanded not to look down on because I'm in a different stage of life. But I also walked through the stage of life where I was looked down upon because of my age. This idea will be looked down upon, which means it is the true concept of marginalization in which you cut away significance and you reduce through contempt your image of that person. That they're small in comparison to the great task. That they're too limited in comparison to the great assignment. That they don't have what it takes to make the journey at this stage. I'm going to mentally make you smaller than you are. I'm going to look at you with contempt, with disdain, this negative affection, this negative feeling. I like you as a person, but in relationship to this assignment, I don't like you. 
I'm going to think little of you. It's a predisposition toward people. Now, older people can, by nature, have that toward younger people. I'm 58. I was a pastor when I was 26. There were people that were 50 coming to my church. I have no clue why. When I'm around somebody 26 right now, I go, do you have your driver's license? It's a weird thing the older that you get. You remember what it's like when you were a freshman in high school, went to school there. By the time you became a senior in high school, didn't the freshmen look like six-year-olds to you? Maybe you're a senior at North Central. The freshmen here look like they're 13. Like, what if we change college? Why are these 13-year-olds coming here on my campus now? Just wait. <laughs> you know, my daughter was 26. Some guy 27 asked her to marry her. And I thought, are you kidding? What? Maybe after you grow up, you 27-year-old, you ill-prepared child at 27. Man, there's just this natural game your brain plays. We are being instructed not to allow this to become a way of life in our relationships because we're going to miss significant contributors to the kingdom. If people my age look down or if you become paralyzed when you're looked down upon, because you will be, because I cannot guarantee that everyone has this outlook that is written in scripture. So really this is about preparing you to navigate and mitigate being looked down upon by people that love the Lord. And it says youthfulness and clearly that word there, the Greek means age. It is an age issue here. You're just not old enough. You're not old enough in my, the way I've constructed the world, someone your age is not fitted for this time. They're not fitted for this season. They're not fitted for this assignment. When you encounter somebody that looks down on you for your age, alone, they're not, they can't look past it. You simply have to hold steady and not become paralyzed by that perception and that perspective of that person. It's going to happen to everybody in this room if it hasn't already happened. So then it says... But rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Real quick, here we go. Speech. You've got to be an example of speech. This word logos. It literally means the word that is uttered by a living voice. It has to do with the entire act of speech. Your tone, your style, your narrative, your reasoning. How you account for your life. How you storytell. How you explain things. How you answer what are the maxims that come out of your life? Um, whether it's a short answer or a long answer, the Bible is saying you cannot be coarse, prideful, ill-prepared, and excessive in your speech. So he's saying don't let anybody look down on you, but don't give them a reason to do it. You want to take away the reasons for people to look down on you and not think that your age has somehow disqualified you from being fitted to the assignment or the dream that's in your heart. Speech is the initial indicator. It arrives first. How we speak, our style, the stories we tell, how we describe people when they're not around always tells the person more about you than it does about them. How you speak about people. Your enthusiasm for people. 
if you belittle them, if you're coarse, if you always twist the narrative to your advantage, if you cannot tell any personal stories of humility and transformation, of how God has worked in you, how God has changed you from this to that, people pick up on that quickly. And you've given them now a reason to look down. It says in conduct. This has to do with all manner of life, man. Whether you're late, whether you're lazy, disorganized, unkept, how you enter or exit a room, your eye contact, how you behave at a game. This word conduct, conduct means the entire manner of life. If you're late, if you're lazy, all the time. And remember, you always want a reputation for people are surprised when you're not there. They're not surprised when you are. Now, if you think about that for a while, you'll understand what I'm talking about. If people go, oh, you're here? That means you have a reputation for never being there. But if you're not there and they notice your absence, not your presence, then your reputation's in the right place. So conduct your whole manner of life. Am I disorganized, unkept, how I keep my car, how I keep my room? All of these things matter. I remember one time I asked a kid, hey, can you give me a ride? The look on his face, because he knew the condition of his car, and he was going to be mortified that the president got into that car. We all have a messy car, but when the banana peel has green hair growing on it, it's been in there a little while, okay? The banana looks like a troll. Don't we, that, that's, that's a little too long. You need to clean your car, dude. But I'm serious about this. All manner of life. Don't give them a reason to think you're too small for the assignment. It says in love. This is simple. It's just your benevolence and your unconditional agape. Non-sexual affection is what it means. Brotherly and sisterly love. My ability to show emotion, positive emotion toward my brothers and sisters in the Lord. My ability to show uh, really what we think in this day and age is equity. That is unconditional. That is not preconditioned and selective. That no matter what heart that's hurting in front of me, no matter what age, size, or color economics it comes in, it gets the same response from me. That's the hope. If you become conditional and non-agape in your love, then you've given them reason to believe that you are too small to be fitted to this assignment. They're looking down on you. So Paul is not just saying, hey, deal with it. Let's give them every reason not to look down on your age. Speech. Is it coarse? Is it truthful? Is your narrative accurate? How you give accounts, how you explain, how you answer. Are you coarse? Are you prideful? Are you ill-prepared? Are you excessive when you talk? Conduct, am I late? Am I lazy? Am I disorganized? Am I unkept? Do I enter the room late and leave it too early? Do I enter the room talking and cocky and arrogant? Do I avoid eye contact? How do I behave in all manners of life? Love. 
That third part of the dashboard. Am I unconditional in my non-sexual affection? In my feeling toward a tear or hurt in someone's heart, a broken heart. Then it says in faith, this powerful phrase, faith. Be thou an example in your faith, but rather in faith. The deep conviction that God exists. Musicians, you guys can come and join me at the end here. The deep conviction that God exists. That he is the creator and the ruler of everything and of every event. He exists and he's the creator and ruler. I have a deep faith. I believe that salvation comes from Christ alone. That there is no other name under heaven. In this age of tolerance and safe spaces, we are still called to bring forth that name and speak it without reservation that makes demons tremble. And yes, people are going to feel upset and they're going to be convicted of their sin when we share with them the truth of the Bible in love. But just because somebody's reacting to what you said doesn't mean you did something wrong. Nowadays, if I say something, oh, you made me feel, you okay, I did something wrong, I did something wrong. No! The, the New Testament is filled with Paul and Peter and everybody else who preached the gospel, and it made people crazy, reactive and upset. They didn't change their message. Now, yes, we've got to grow in love, and our tone and timing is everything, but the Holy Spirit has already got that figured out. But just because somebody doesn't like what you said doesn't mean you just did something wrong. Because we don't dumb down to the reaction, the tolerant reaction of this world to the gospel, friends. If we go down that path, this whole thing's off the rails. Whole thing's off the rails. There's going to be people that leave us like the rich young ruler left Jesus sad. Jesus didn't run go, oh, oh man, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, let me change it. Let me change my message. I'm sorry. I made you sad. Look, Jesus didn't run and run after him. Let him walk. Sad. Turned to his disciples and explained why the guy was sad. So faith believes that salvation is through Christ alone. That Christ is the predominant idea of the universe. Christ alone. Christ alone. It's about seeing promises as the science. This day and age we live in, follow the science. As believers, we follow the promises as though they were science. The promises of God, that is the evidence of things unseen, of things hoped for. When I am a person of faith, I have a conviction that God exists. He's the creator and ruler of this earth, that salvation is through Christ alone, that Christ is the predominant idea of the universe, Christ alone. And the promises of God's word, that is the science, friends. That is the evidence of action. And lastly, it says in purity, and it's interesting, only used twice in the New Testament, this word purity in this case, and it's both in 1 Timothy 4.12, and then also in chapter 5, verse 2, it says to the young men, you treat older women, especially your sisters, with purity. And the word there, when you look up this word, it simply has a one-word definition, sinlessness. It's the idea 
of, of behaving in a non-sexual way toward your brothers and sisters in the Lord. You got to walk in purity. It's this life that is, it's the unmixed life. It is the life that's not tainted or the uncontaminated life. There's no foreign element that's been added into the mix. And then it says, show yourself an example. The word show there just simply means go public. Go public. Step on the stage. Come upon the stage. Not in religious hypocrisy, but you got to go public with this transformed life when you're young. Be thou an example. It's a powerful word. When something is formed by a strike or a blow, like the making of a, of a coin, the template strikes the metal, leaves the imprint of the template. The idea of being an example, one is to receive the blow and the strike of Christ in my life, that he leaves his image on my life. But then we become the template for a broken world. And when we touch things, we, live the, we leave the image of Christ. We literally are giving that figure of the Messiah, that image of Christ to this world with everything we touch. So I don't bat a thousand. I need to confess my sins to the Lord. I pray I catch them early before my heart gets calloused. And say, ooh, Lord, I confess that as sin. I agree. Would you fill me, Holy Spirit, with new strength that next time that my, my speech, my conduct, my love, my faith, and, and the purity of my life is an example. I don't want to give anyone a reason to make me smaller than I am in you, Lord, especially when I'm young. And I just want to encourage you to keep this dashboard in front of you for the rest of your life, these five. Let's stand together, friends. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Man, nobody wants to tell the president he went too long. I went too long. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Father, this morning, I thank you for this wonderful day, Jesus. Thank you for this Monday, God. Let it just be a catapult into this week, Lord. Help us to carry the word of God strong and rich in our heart today, Jesus. Thank you for these precious leaders and students, Lord. Water the earth with their lives, God. Lord, long after I'm done on this earth, God, they're still going to be living and leading and breathing and planting and replicating your kingdom, Jesus. Lord, we give you praise today in Jesus' name. How many glad you came to chapel today on this Monday? Okay. Carry the word in your heart. Sorry, you guys. I went too long there to sing. Uh, be blessed. Be good. Homework. Stay on it. And um, Reggie will be here Thursday, Friday. We got great chapels tomorrow and Wednesday, but also Thursday, Friday, man. Reggie Dabs back to back. Love everybody. God bless you guys.